Hello, welcome to Stages. I'm your host, Peter Ayers, and I wanted to start this episode by sharing some exciting information. The Stages podcast will record live in Sydney for the very first time as part of the Ideas program at the 2022 Vivid Festival. Engaging and informative, the show is a vital chronicle of oral histories from Australia's rich arts heritage. The podcast has featured 285 conversations thus far with creative artists and performers from a range of performing arts disciplines. This three-series event at Vivid will celebrate the contribution of three key elements vital to the art of telling stories. On Thursday, June 2nd, my guest will be producer Carmen Pavlovich. Thursday, June 9th, we welcome costume designers Jennifer Irwin and Julie Lynch. And the series is completed on Thursday, June 16th, when our guest is the artistic director of the Griffin Theatre Company, Declan Green. Tickets are free, and to register, just visit the Vivid website and search for Stages Live. There are going to be three fantastic conversations, and it'll be great to have you in the audience, watching Stages on stage. We look forward to your company. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Then the next craft. block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Johnny Allen is a seminal figure in alternative arts and culture in Australia and a recognised pioneer of the event industry, often referred to as the father of events in Australia. He's been at the helm of a vast array of projects that embrace spectacle and immersion, delivering to audiences experiences that manufacture memories that last a lifetime. Now semi-retired, Johnny continues to practice event management, coordinating the cabaret program for the Sedition Festival in 2019. The Golden Mile Gallery exhibition of gay history in 20 shopfronts on Oxford Street as a feature event of the Oxtravaganza program for Mardi Gras in 2020 and gay cultural history exhibitions for Mardi Gras in 2021 and 2022. He was, of course, at the helm of the Nimbin Aquarius Festival in 1973. He's also a board member of the proposed Queer Museum Project Qtopia Sydney, a consultant to the State Library Queer Exhibition in 2023, and he's preparing a major gay cultural program for Sydney World Pride in 2023. Johnny is certainly a busy fellow. Next Thursday, June 16th, he is presenting a queer-themed evening of events at the Powerhouse Museum, up late. The evening is part of the Ideas Program for the Vivid Festival, now enthralling patrons across Sydney. 
Johnny joined Stages to discuss this event and lifetime of creating memories for audiences participating in vivid, extraordinary and exciting events. Welcome, Johnny. Thank you, Peter. So, are you on track for next week? Yes, I think we're. I think we're all okay. We have a selection of, uh, uh, of I think, you know, some of the uh, both from the, from then and now, from uh, from the seventies through to through to the, uh, the present, a selection of some of the real movers and shakers of the uh, the queer arts scene, uh, in a series of exhibitions, uh, seminars, talks, movies, etc. Because it's not until the seventies that the uh, the queer identity really became visible. In That's Australia. true. I mean, late sixties to early seventies, things things uh, uh, <coughs> things like Dennis Altman's. Uh, publication of um, Homosexual, uh, the equivalent of Germaine Greer's uh, book on feminism, uh, <clears throat> the Stonewall riots in New York, those things in the late 60s really kind of announced a new wave of gay liberation that swept the world, and Sydney was one of its, um, proud to say, one of its uh, main uh, campuses. You'd really say it exploded. It, uh, it explosion is, is the right word. <laughs> came, came lavishly out of that closet. <laughs> it, 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 came, it came out screaming loud and clear. Yeah, but some magnificent, magnificent artists who you're uh, celebrating um, on, the, on the night. Cindy Pastel, Miss 3D, Blake Lawrence, Aaron Manhattan, Taki Onassis. Uh, the list goes on. <laughs> Fabulous line. <laughs> the list goes on. Uh, basically, uh, sort of when I was invited by... Uh, Gil Minavini, the CEO of, uh, of uh, Vivid, who incidentally was uh, in, uh, uh, ran the Mardi Gras parade uh, back in, in the 70s, the Mardi Gras Festival. Uh, when Gil invited me to, to put together a, uh, an art on Chris Sydney, I immediately sort of you know, brought in Dino Dimitriades and Seymour Hardy to uh, basically so that we had the period covered. We're each from different decades and generations. But between us, we pretty much covered the spectrum. And we sat down together and thought, like, who do we consider to be the key movers and shakers? Not all of them were available. Occasionally, people had other commitments or couldn't do it, but m- most of them answered the call. <laughs> so I think, I think it's, I'm pretty proud of the lineup. I think it's a pretty good lineup. You also got a celebration of Qtopia Sydney. Now, now tell me about Qtopia. That's um, a, a celebration, a museum. Yes, Qtopia Sydney. It's it's a it's a queer museum project, uh, <coughs> which is um, uh, really answering the need that Sydney has had for a long time. Uh, Sydney is recognised internationally as one of the sort of you know gay cities in the world. Uh, uh, pretty much all of the others: San Francisco, New York, Berlin, London, etc have all had queer museums for quite a long time. Sydney has had nowhere to celebrate and, and, and to keep and show off its queer culture. We're about to host the world uh, in uh, um, Sydney World Pride uh, in early 2023, the world uh, queer community to Sydney. So we thought it was an appropriate time that we established a queer museum. I was going to ask, um, do you think Sydney is as gay as it used to be? But then again, we are celebrating World Pride next year. But um, I guess with different decades, the culture shifts a little bit, it, it reforms, it, it becomes does something indeed. else. indeed. I mean, the, uh, uh, the, the central um, <coughs> session that we're planning for Queer Sydney um, at the Powerhouse, we're calling it... Um, <coughs> um, <coughs> from... Uh, uh, from 
gay to queer, from camp to gay to queer. Because through those three decades and, and with those three names, the culture has shifted. I think sort of in the early 70s it was an explosion of gay and lesbian. They were a little bit separate, with, you know, uh, Darlinghurst the centre of gay and Leichhardt Glead the centre of lesbian. But they, uh, uh, it, I think that generation needed to define itself in, in ways that other generations hadn't. Then, as time has moved on, it has shifted. That was a shift from the old sort of, uh, you know, earlier uh, camp movement of the uh, 50s and 60s. And now we've shifted for quite some time, I think, in, into a, an era where uh, queer has become the label, and it's more than just a name change. It's a, it's a whole change of... Now young people, I think, see sexuality as fluid. They see it as very much to, to do with their personal identity and not just sexuality in the way that people... So so it's a whole, you know, quite sophisticated change. I don't uh, pretend to have my head around it all. (laughs) And part of what we're attempting to do with uh, Queer Sydney is to explore uh, some of those nuances and subtleties and where it's all going. Well, it's going to be a great night. Um, I think about five o'clock it begins. Yes, it begins... It runs from five till nine. And uh, in... uh, I would advise people to try and come early because there's so much on that you'll, <laughs> you'll need all of that time. Well, I know I'm looking forward to a conversation with Cindy Pastel and Miss 3D at about 5.30, I think, so yes. um, I can't two, wait for that. Two icons of, of the queer scene, uh, Cindy Pastel, uh, the, uh, uh, the movie uh, um, in the desert, what's it? Uh, oh, Priscilla. Priscilla, Priscilla Quinn, <laughs> was, was based on, uh, on Cindy's uh, um, lifestyle, life. So between between 3D and Cindy, they are two of the uh, absolute icons of the of the queer scene. Mm. Uh, both uh, uh, you know amusing and witty, and, and uh, you know so I think that'll be a very interesting session for as they get to attend it. Johnny, you've given birth, so to speak, to decades of events and festivals. When did the role of um, event manager first come to be in Australia? You, you uh, were there a, at the ground floor? Yeah, I think I was in there at the ground floor. That's an interesting question. And my answer would be somewhere around the late 60s to early 70s. There had been a tradition of festivals which goes way back. I mean, if you look at a lot of country towns, you know, back in the 20s and 30s, they, they had a local festival. Well, I, mean, I grew up in country Victoria. We had the annual Golden Wattle Festival, in, which in was the, a celebration of arts and culture. Yeah, and Ballarat Begoni Festival began, began, yeah. went, went, went back uh, decades. Uh, one of the, the, the real landmarks was the establishment of the Edinburgh Festival just at the end of, of the Second World War. And the... Um, the vision statement uh, uh, of the Edinburgh Festival was to, you know, to heal the wounds in a world grown weary of war. It was a real kind of rebirth of culture yeah. after the war and was very successful. The Edinburgh Festival uh, became a uh, cultural landmark around the world and many other festivals then were modelled on that. The, uh, uh, <coughs> the uh, Festival of Perth, uh, ultimately the Sydney and Melbourne Festivals were all modelled on, um, uh, on Edinburgh. But in, in a, it was rather high culture. It was a, a lot of it was about uh, opera and ballet and dance and classical music, and then along came things like Woodstock in the late sixties, and uh, and the whole cultural, not just the gay thing, but the whole you know the land rights movement, the environment movement, the women's movement, etc., etc., and the culture was changing. 
So at, at that stage, um, I had been running um, little kind of um, mini festivals out, outside Sydney, but, but based on very much on this alternative music and, and, and cultural scene. Scored a job with the Australian Union of Students um, to run uh, <coughs> um, a, <coughs> a, a major student festival, which must happen every two years. The first one had happened in Canberra in 1971 before me, and then I was engaged with Graham Dunstan to organise the second one in 1973. Originally, it was to be modelled on that, that uh, you know, that Edinburgh model, it was to be held on Melbourne University campus, and people saw it as a lot of you know, theatre. Was well, the intention to travel around to different campuses? No, states? no, 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 no. But it, was, it was a national fest. The first right. one had been held in Canberra. Mm second one in Melbourne and the idea was it'd be held in a different city each two right. years but it would be a national yep. student festival. Yep. So Graham and I got hold of this, we, we both applied, uh, I applied for the job as cultural director of the foundation and Graham as festival director, unknown to each other although we knew one another quite well. We ended up sitting in Drummond Street, Melbourne at the AUS headquarters saying, oh you're here too, <laughs> <laughs> what do we do now? Uh, so we both got out our address books and thought, well, who do we know that might be interesting to talk to about this? And pretty quickly we arrived at, you know, uh, in terms of what was going on culturally at that particular moment in time, uh, a high art festival on a university campus in Melbourne really wasn't going to cut it. What we needed to do was to look towards the whole exploding alternative movement. So the idea became to uh, to hold it on the... Uh, property on, on, on the north coast of New South Wales, uh, which could be purchased and people could stay and form a commune afterwards if they so choose. And uh, we be- went about trying to uh, um, nitpick the best brains of the alternative culture around Australia. I was touring uh, performers and speakers at that stage. I was trying to put a little bit of intellectual rigour and challenge into the university uh, Network. Part of my job was to set up a campus circuit across all the campuses in Australia. Toured people like Ralph Nader, the consumer uh, advocate, uh, Spike Milligan, <laughs> uh, brought um, Richard Neville over from London, Ivan Illich, um, Ron Cobb, Phillips, etc., etc. People who were uh, recognised figures in that whole countercultural scene. So quite often I'd be in Perth on a Monday, Adelaide on a, on a Tuesday, and you know, North Queensland by Friday, and uh, as uh, touring these, these various speakers and acts. And what would happen, Graham would quite often come and join me in, say, Adelaide for a day or two. We would try and identify anyone doing anything interesting, whether it was a macrobiotic restaurant or a poet or a, uh, a playwright or, or, or a, a clothing design, it didn't matter, as long as they were doing something that we saw as innovative and creative in an alternative way, uh, we would go and... So we would then throw these big sort of um, uh, banquets, chicken carry banquets for 20 or 30 people, and we'd get up and explain to them, this is the concept, this is what we're trying to do. And uh, usually what would happen, about three quarters of them would uh, walk out muttering, oh, 60 hippie bullshit, and there'd be sort of, you know, eight or ten people sitting there saying, sounds great, when do we start and what do you want us to do? So uh, we slowly collected, you know, some hundreds of people who were committed to this concept. Well, part of your success too is building a network, isn't it? 
It is. Because you're, probably, you're going to rely on those people year after yes, year, yes. festival after festival. I mean, Graham and I were both into manifestos, so we wrote a manifesto. One line of the manifesto, manifesto said, there is no program, you are the festival. So what we were saying is this is not a festival about big rock and roll names, etc. The festival is whatever you as the attendees make it. So we encourage people to whatever their skill and their interest was to bring that along, to showcase it, to you know, to look at sustainable ways of, of living on the land as they did that. So it was a completely turning upside down, if you like, of the old model of the high arts uh, festival. A lot of these events are outside, I presume? Uh, yes, yes, yes. So primarily outside. So you've got a whole lot of other considerations there as well as the content. You're yes. dealing with the logistics of what's the weather going to do. Uh, you need <laughs> latrines. You, you, need, you do uh, indeed. And there, and, there, and, and there were no models back then. We weren't you know, these these days. If you want to do something like that, there's a whole there are models there, and you could look at what all the other big fests. Back then, there, there were no models. Uh, I've said on, on, on many occasions we were pirates. We make them up as we went. Uh, we didn't have a lot of skills, but we were kind of aware of the issues and the needs. So <clears throat> we had this idea, and in my mind it was going to be a, a beautiful beachside uh, property, sort of, you know, with, uh, with running water and good road access, etc. And So, so <clears throat> every time that uh, I had a little bit of a break in my um, pressured touring circuit, Graham and I would be up the north coast in looking for the perfect uh, site for the festival. And we could never find it. There was always something wrong. The water wasn't, the water access wasn't good enough. The, the road access wasn't good enough. So eventually, kind of thought, all right, back to Melbourne University campus. And we almost by accident stumbled on Nimbin, this little um, forgotten village that was, uh, <coughs> its population then was less than it had been in the 19th century. It was a dying dairy town because the bottom had fallen out of the dairy industry. Mm. So the kind of penny dropped of, can we recycle the town and, and you, know, you know, basically sort of, you know, turn that town into a festival site. So we held a meeting with, the, with all of the town. It had a population of about 300 at that stage. Um, more people than that turned up at the meeting, so everyone and his dog turned up. We basically spelled out the idea to them and said, this is what we're going to try and do. If you like this, we'll stay and do it. If you don't like it, we'll go away and, you know, you'll, we won't bother you again. The local cop couldn't attend the meeting but wrote a brilliant letter to the meeting saying this is a once in a lifetime opportunity that we cannot afford to, to miss. The town voted unanimously to host the festival. I think a lot of them had you know, uh, stars in their eyes about how many hamburgers and beers <laughs> they could sell, <laughs> can make sell, a bit of money. Can yeah. sell to all their students. Uh, and, and it was on. So basically, kind of, we saw that the main street of the town is the centre, but all we leased the fields around the town, so that then they became the festival site where people were invited to come and camp and to display their wares. We're talking the Aquarius Festival. This is also this is around 1973. Yes, this is the Aquarius Festival. Who it's named it Aquarius? How did it come up? Uh, the organisation that I was heading up was known as the Aquarius Foundation of the Australian Union of Students. Uh, uh, it had been there. I'm not quite sure who had named it the Aquarius Foundation, but it was obviously kind of Aquarius was in the air as a result of hair, etc., as a kind of, a, if you like, a symbol of the, the new uh, uh, ecological movement. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so being being head of the Aquarius Foundation, the uh, the logical name for the festival was the Aquarius Festival. Being cowboys, did you ever go to opening night and think, oh shit, we forgot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got to organise all. Many, many, many times. <laughs> we, uh, we, <clears throat> there was a lot of involvement from the university uh, campuses and from the commune movement. So the uh, the architecture uh, faculties of both Sydney and New South Wales universities had agreed to provide all the structures for toilets and uh, showers, etc. So we were busily kind of there up there with this kind of uh, you know building all of those. Uh, part of the problem was that uh, um, the festival was to be free. There was no entry fee, no booking. So we really had no idea how many people were going to attend. And it was like a kind of word of mouth thing. Every now and then it would take off and you were getting letters from people on the Southeast uh, Asian Trail from Bangkok or whatever saying heading to the festival. Uh, and then sort of something would go a bit awry and sort of, you know, they think, oh, kind of, is the whole thing going to be a major flop? We really had had no, and and to this day, nobody can tell you exactly how many people came to it. <laughs> Roughly, it was ten thousand, <laughs> but that, that that that's a guess because no one ever signed their names. Or, yeah. And this uh, is a time too before technology. You don't have email. You don't have mobile phones. I know <laughs> you're requiring on when I think back, How did we communicate? How mm. did we manage to bring uh, African musician Dollar Brand and? Uh, a French typewriter book of Philippe Petit, Bells of Ben from Paris, Bells of Bengal from um, from India, uh, and basically, <laughs> what I was doing was writing on those little kind of aerogram letters, writing little invitations, say, yeah, my name is Johnny Allen, and I'm doing this festival. In <laughs> would like to invite you. Then you would wait, kind of, you know, sometimes six or eight weeks, and a reply would come back. I got a lovely reply from Bernard Aspel's uh, secretary saying, uh, I reach out across the ocean with a friendly joint. He obviously made his hand and I, <laughs> <laughs> I interpreted it slightly differently. <laughs> so I thought, okay, they've got to be in. Um, <clears throat> we had made an in-principle decision that nobody would be paid because we didn't want this to be about performers and audience. As I say, the whole thing was you are the festival. But we did then sort of... Uh, uh, look at getting assistance. We got uh, Australian Council Assistance for Fairs to bring out Philippe Petit from, from Paris. Had you walked across the Twin Towers by then or uh, all no, the Opera House? No, uh, not didn't. the Harbour Bridge? Uh, no, that, that was, that was a result of coming out to oh. Sydney for Nimbin. Right. It's a week after Nimbin. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason I had heard about him uh, was that he had worked, walked between the Twin Towers of Notre Dame in Paris right. and was being hailed as the blondin of his generation. And uh, we picked up on this and sort of sought out contacts for him and invited him uh, uh, with no money. Uh, we just basically said, oh, well, you know, would you like to come and uh, we'll, we'll try and arrange an airfare for you? And we did eventually arrange an airfare. Interesting, because a couple of years later, Stephen Hall was running the Sydney Festival, uh, wanted to do perfectly to do a walk between the, uh, the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. And that fairly quoted him a fee of a million dollars. <laughs> so Stephen contacted me and said, Johnny, how much did you pay him? And, he, and I said, nothing. <laughs> he, he didn't believe me. <laughs> and, you know, shortly after, of course, he walked between the Twin Towers of, uh, in New York and, and the rest, as we say, is history. He's now an internationally 
No, no, forget. I guess it was a turn too for airline travel. It made international artists a little easier to get to Australia. Otherwise, they would have to be on the boat for many weeks. It was just at that time, it was just at the birth of international air travel when it was just becoming possible. But it was, I mean, the, the, the fares are pretty much the same today in dollars, but when you translate that into what those dollars meant back in 1973, uh, you're talking, you know, what was then big money. Right. But, uh, but yes, that, that made a lot of that possible. Uh, all of those people flew, they didn't come out by back. You need to consider uh, medical support also for, for in, those big events. In, indeed, uh, all of that. And, and as I say, we, we had all of those things on the agenda and dealt with them. We had a, 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 um, a, a friendly doctor in, in the network and sort of had a medical uh, building dedicated as a medical centre. But it was all compared to what you would do and expect with a major festival today. It was all very basic and, and you know, um, because it was the first time. I said, we, we, there was no model. Uh, we were just making it up and thinking, okay, what, what, if, we, if we get 10,000 people, what are we going to need? Yeah. <laughs> if, we, if we'd got 2,000 people, there would have been a lot of uh, unnecessary toilets. <laughs> so, so when did you grow up? Was there a cultural celebration every year in your town? Or? Oh, no, no, no. I grew, I grew up in a very... Uh, uh, Conventional, impoverished, working-class environment. Mm. Uh, my uh, <coughs> um, my father had been um, well. I was I was born in '43, summer so war baby. My father had been serving up in Darwin and didn't get back until some time after the war. So, grew up in my uh, grandparents' house. Uh, my father was a simple storeman, lugging bags of wheat on his back and working in abattoirs. Eventually, the family came down to Sydney to, uh, uh, for better educational opportunities for my sister and I as the kids. Uh, we lived in a tent on Curl Curl Beach because that was all we could afford until we got emergency uh, uh, housing in one of the sort of um, converted army camps. So it was real basic working class stuff. Uh, I never saw a book or a record in, in my, I don't think my parents ever. <laughs> so, so there was, I, I grew up in a cultural vacuum, basically. Went to Catholic schools, uh, Christian Brothers Manly, where the class size was 60. I can remember and one art class when the, the Christian Brother kind of drew a cup and saucer and lines on the blackboard and all 60 students, as he would draw one line, we would all draw the same line on our pieces of paper. So we all ended up with the drawing of a cup and saucer pretty clumsy one. Yeah. So that was my kind of art education. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite an um, um, interesting upbringing there. I, I, I guess that builds a resilience in you too and a determination to, to succeed. Um, in me it built a curiosity more than anything else. Yeah. As, as I say, um, I, I grew up in a very limited cultural horizon, which I don't blame my parents, it wasn't no, my fault, no, no. but it was very limited. But I kind of became aware as I became a teenager in 15, 16, there is more to life than this. Uh, there is something out there. <laughs> so I deliberately sought out the Bohemians of King's Cross. It was that period when there was still quite a lot of um, um, post-war migrants that had come out, some of them Jews that had escaped the, you know, the, the Hitler debacle in Europe and whatever. Uh, so I deliberately sought out these people who had a culture and a very intact culture, very much around the sort of in the King's Cross Bohemian area. 
Uh, and in those days, it was genuinely bohemian, and you know, not just that migrant population, but uh, the ABC was headquartered there, the ABC training school, etc. Uh, so a lot of the people living there, if they weren't cultural migrants, they were broadcasters, publishers, etc. So there was a whole milieu that um, I hungrily devoured. <laughs> that was welcomed. I mean, as I sort of, you know, got to meet some of these people through the coffee shops, I'd go and sit in a coffee shop and if someone looked interesting, I'd try and go and talk to them. Uh, often they opened up to me, took me into their homes, and, and, and that's where I got my basic education. From. You were discovering your tribe. I was discovering my tribe. <laughs> Did you spend um, hours in the library at school? Was that, was that no, an escape? No, have a library. No, oh, really? What are you talking okay. about? <laughs> so it's actually going out and meeting people and, and yeah. discovering the world for yourself. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, eventually, kind of, um, um, I hated, hated school, to be quite honest. It, it, it was very... Um, I, I, didn't kind of have words to express that I was gay at the time, but I was certainly a, a sissy and, and, and not kind of uh, the conventional rugby playing uh, uh, <coughs> youngster that was kind of, you know, the, the model in the school. Uh, uh, so hated being forced into the cadets and learning how to dismantle brain guns. Hated being on the football field where you just got bullied and kicked. Um, and so in left school back in those days, so it was sort of five years of senior school and intermediate certificate and threes and then a leaving certificate five. Left school after the intermediate, did my leaving certificate as a private study candidate uh, and therefore got, you know, uh, in one year, got less of a pass than I probably should have done, but managed to scrape in with a scholarship to Teachers College. And then Teachers College was, again, what completed my education. I had a wonderful two years at Teachers College. There were sort of 15 subjects and they just didn't include just teaching and whatever they included, kind of uh, art, literature, etc., etc. So I hungrily absorbed all that. And then sort of at the end of it, um, ended up thinking, well, do I really want to do teaching? <laughs> really wasn't uh, cut out to be a teacher. But uh, in, in, in the United States, uh, they have a thing called the Liberal Arts College, which is between high school and university. And it's kind of a... I got that kind of broad education... From a combination of those uh, uh, of the teachers' college curriculum, and then I discovered the Workers' Educational Association and all that sort of wonderful um, system coming through the trade union movement to educate the workers. Yeah, became a real groupie of, uh, of all of that, and that's where I got my uh, my basic education from. You studied drama also, didn't you? In I was fair, university. I was, uh, it was yeah, one of the first drama courses. Yes, I, I, I enrolled in what was the first uh, um, <coughs> was a, a, a bachelor of education course in the drama school at the University of New South Wales, and the drama school uh, professor Robert Quinton was professor of drama and also head of NIDA and also head of the Alto Theatre Company, which eventually morphed into Sydney Theatre Company. So it was the kind of the theatre. Sense uh, centre of Sydney, really. Uh, and again, sort of being an absolute theatre groupie, uh, dived into all that, ended up sort of, you know, um, setting up and publishing and editing uh, a theatre magazine, uh, writing, uh, you know, as a critic and, and, and a dramaturg, writing uh, prolifically on, uh, on the emerging. Back then, kind of, you know, the search for the great Australian play was... <laughs> dominating things quite a bit because we were just making that shift from 
having been culturally um, you know, um, limited or, 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 or run by you know, um, British and European theatre to you know, discovering our own unique Australian idiom. Well, similarly, uh, we spoke earlier about the, uh, the, the gay profile being exploding around then. It was the same yes. with theatre to a degree, yes. wasn't it? Because in Sydney we really only had the ensemble theatre, right? yeah, and yes. maybe the independent, and yes. the old church. Yeah, Long before Sydney Theatre Company. Yes, or, yes, yes. yes. Belfast. Yes, yeah. and I used, to, I used to act at the independent. And, 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 very, and there was a very lively kind of you know, theatre scene which you were, uh, could immerse yourself in, and which I did. <laughs> Back in, for that period, pretty much every night of the week I would be... And you could afford to go to the theatre, the, even as a student. You could afford to go. These days, if I went to the theatre as many nights as I did back in the... Uh, You'd be broke. Uh, <laughs> broke. You'd owe money. You'd owe yeah. money. So did you harbour an ambition to be an actor for a while? I did, mm-hmm. and sort of you know, appeared in a number of, <laughs> uh, of productions, uh, some of which I have very positive memories of. Kind of at a certain stage worked out, A, that... I was probably a bit too intellectual to be an actor, that I kind of really kind of liked the, the, the dramaturg and producer role more than the actor role, and also that there are other people around who are better than I was being an actor. So yes, that's the realisation you have to have at yeah. a point, don't you? So <laughs> I think so. Other people yes. do it better, so let me find out what I'm yeah, doing well. Yeah, let's find out what I'm good at. So um, you, you documented theatre and the arts for, for a while there with Mask magazine. Yes, yes. Was that the first theatre-oriented magazine No, there had been a magazine prior to that called Australian Theatre Goer, some years before, but before I was around, but which had died and disappeared. So at the point when I... Um, uh, initiated Mass, there was no National Theatre magazine. Mass became the National so there was a gap there. But it was a time at which there, I think there was a, a need for a dialogue about, you know, the Australian theatre and the because emergence. Of course, we had plays and players coming in from overseas we, and, and Theatre World from, we did, from we America. Did, we did, so indeed. who... Um, I miss those magazines that you can actually yes. wait for them in the post to arrive and then just devour <laughs> what was happening in the West End or Broadway. <laughs> yeah. And now it's... Just a, a click away on the internet. In, in, indeed. It's so much easier now, and yet uh, maybe, I, I don't know about this, it requires some deep thought, maybe the effort that you had to go to back then to find out about these things gave you more value than now just being able to sit there on your phone and it's all, all there to click. Well, but even the, lo- the most recent cast recording, you'd go down and or you'd order it and the LP would arrive yes. and you'd go <laughs> home and you'd just... And you, Sit you would and listen. Yeah, and you would hear about it, know about it for months before you actually got to hear it. No, you just click Spotify. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> oh, the romance of the world is gone, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was a time also when um, we were developing a real Australian culture where television had been American. Yes. Um, a lot of the films, you know, our, our film industry was taking off, so yes. we were finding out what our identity was. Very much. If, if there was a theme for that era of, 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 of Mask magazine, etc., it was the search for an Australian identity, not just in the theatre but in the culture. Uh, and, and as you say, it had been very much dominated post-war by sort of British and European and then American, and we were discovering really for the first time that there was an... In, um, indigenous has got other overtones now, but there was an Indigenous Australian culture forming. I mean, plays like the uh, the One Day of the Year, etc., were 
landmarks in their day mm. because they were dealing with uh, Australian content in an Australian way and an Australian voice. I remember when I was uh, I was taught acting at the Independent Theatre by the wonderful Dame Doris Fitton, and what she was trying to teach me to do was to speak with an English accent. <laughs> and, and, and all the newsreaders had English accents. I actually joined the ABC as a trainee producer in, in the late sixties, and back then, kind of, you know, uh, you did not you, you did not go on air unless you could produce a fairly convincing, uh, you know, um, British educated accent. Mm. Uh, and you know, an Australian accent with our wide vowels, etc. Was, and I couldn't hear it. I remember sort of in a Doris actually almost screaming at me on one occasion. Sort of, a, she had me reading a poem, and the the the, the line was, um, "Dance and Provencal song," and she's saying, "No, no, no, Johnny, not dance, dance, dance." I'm saying, "Dance, no, dance." I just could not hear. Yeah. The difference. The difference. Yeah. <laughs> well, the uh, the background in theatre certainly stood you in good stead for creating a sense of the theatre in in your events in in a variety of spaces and locations on streets. Yes, yes. I've um, always called my role and my concept of, uh, of of events as the theatre of celebration. That's how I see it. It it, it is theatre, but it's theatre writ large in in public celebration that I've tried to develop as, I guess, my own interest in art form. You showed me a book earlier when I arrived, uh, The Entertainment Arts in Australia. Yes. Um, that's a wonderful document if anyone can ever find it in a second-hand <laughs> bookshop or, or, or no longer in publication. But um, you were doing wonderful things there. Describe what, what that book was. It was an attempt to, to capture that, that sort of burgeoning uh, Australian theatre scene at, at the time. There was a, a, a very prominent uh, theatre photographer called Robert Walker that uh, had uh, done, you know, uh, provided a lot of photos for me for Mass Magazine. So Robert and I got talking and said, why don't we do a book? So we basically identified what we thought were the key movers and shakers, not just in Sydney but Australia-wide, uh, in the theatre, uh, and uh, requested uh, an interview with them. Robert would photograph them, and as Robert photographed them, I would interview them. And transcribed all and edited all the interviews, and that became this uh, this book. We called it um, uh, the Entertainment Arts in Australia. It was really, you know, theatre in Australia, and uh, I think it did to some extent capture that sort of uh, just wonderful moment when 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 Australian theatre was on the cusp of of becoming, uh, you know, taking over from that uh, you know British European one of the past. Mm. Are you good at being an audience member? Are you able to sit there and, and let it all wash over you? Or are you constantly looking and, and, <laughs> and um, finding what could be done better? Or? A, bit, a bit of both. Uh, my, my partner always insists that sort of, you know, that uh, particularly with events, uh, I'm very big on kind of uh, how you design an event to maximise the experience for the audience and, to, and the comfort for the audience. So if I go to an event and I don't think that that's right... Uh, my brain automatically ticks over. No, I wouldn't put that there. I would put that there. I'd do that differently, uh, and and yeah, I just can't help that. That's kind of <laughs> that's. But at the same time, I I am I love to be totally immersed and swept away. I, I seek that. It doesn't happen as often as I'd like, but uh, but I, I I I'm open to it and love it when it does happen. Is there an evening or an event or a concert uh, that that has stayed with you for a long time? That that oh, from yes. the, the many festivals you've yes, you've stayed? several. Uh, 
Uh, one, one I'll mention that um, <coughs> I mentioned earlier, the bales of Bengals at Nimbin. What had happened with the Nimbin Aquarius Festival, there had been... Um, <coughs> Uh, there had been a nefarious drug bust on the, on the, uh, early in the festival, and the, <coughs> we'd had an agreement with uh, with the, the local conservatory, etc., that they wouldn't interfere with the festival as long as um, um, we policed it ourselves, as as long as there were no you know hard drugs or or, or you know bad things happening. Um, in the lead up to the festival, a couple of people came to town. Uh, that stood out like a sore thumb because they just obviously weren't part of our tribe. And I met questioning them, saying, um, what are you, what, who are you, what are you doing here? And I just got this, you'll find out. And the festival had... Uh, the, the Whitlam government had just the year before come to Paris part of a student and, and worker coalition and there were a lot of people setting out to undermine that Whitlam government. So when this, uh, on the second day of the festival, when the police got a report that there'd been a heroin um, dealing and, and a, a young 13-year-old girl raped in one of the tents, they felt that this, uh, they had to override this agreement they had with went into the festival. So then, of course, all hell broke loose. Uh, you know, the police vehicle was overturned, someone stole a policeman's hat and gun, etc. Then it was on for everybody. So, you know, <coughs> once to the, within, within hours, the 21st riot squad had arrived from Sydney. The main street was lined on one side with the riot squad, 150 strong, and the other <laughs> side with student radicals re- ready for a fight. And Graham and I in the middle of all this thinking, what, what do we do now? <laughs> and we had several meetings to the point where I got laryngitis and lost my voice. I literally couldn't make a sound. So I thought, okay, what can I do? And I remembered that I still had the bowels of Bengal sitting in, in Calcutta, happy to come to the festival, but I hadn't managed to, uh, to arrange uh, finance and fees. So I set myself to that. Borrowed the money. Um, <coughs> but okay, how do I get visas for uh, six itinerant Indian hippie mu- uh, magician, musicians? In those days, getting visas into Australia at all was not easy. And that was quite interesting because um, <coughs> uh, Judith Wright, the Australian poet, was at the festival and, and very admiring of it. I had a conversation with Judith and she said, here, this man will help you. And she gave me H, Dr. H.C. Coombs, Nugget Coombs' card, who was the head of the Reserve Bank. And they'd had a relationship for a long time. They'd had a relationship, yes. which I didn't know. No, nobody knew it at the time. <laughs> at that stage, she said, you know, go, go and see this man, he will help you. So I actually <laughs> hired a plane, flew to Canberra, <laughs> um, <coughs> rang Nugget Coombs' office and uh, walked into, into his office. He was sitting there with this huge empty oak desk and the day's newspaper spread out in front of him. Um, 5,000 hippies riot, police beaten. He looked up at me and said, I know who you are, what do you want? <laughs> so, Bevel and Adam, Bowser uh, Bengal sitting in airport, need visas. <coughs> he picked up the phone, Coombs here. I had the visas in my back pocket before I left building hall. <laughs> so on the last night of the festival, the festival ran for 15 days and usually they were reg- regarded as the wettest 15 days on the north coast. All the locals said, you're mad, you'll be washed out. 
didn't rain for 15 days, it rained on the 16th. The 15th night, the bells arrived uh, from, uh, from Bengal for you know, their first concert. Did a brilliant concert under the full moon. And I still remember, I still today hold that concert as, you know, a bit of a feeling of triumph over adversity. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Isn't it funny, life and and art, it's it's, sometimes depends on those happy accidents, you know, the fact that you'd seen Judith Wright, who (laughs) introduced you to to Nugget Coons, made it all possible. Yes, and without without those lucky accidents, it could not have happened, and there was, I haven't gone into all of them, but there were several of them to make up that story. And it is those kind of, um, uh, and it's that sort of, struggle sometimes against almost insurmountable odds to make it happen that gives it, I think, in my mind, gives it value and, 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 and those, those are the things that become um, cutting edge and, and break down barriers. Mm. There are many of them, some of which I've been proud to be associated with, many of them I've just admired from a distance. Yes. But there are many of those which I think become the landmarks in our culture. Yeah. Now you've also guided the early music scene in Australia. Also, tell me about the art factory. <laughs> the arts factory. The arts factory was um, <coughs> hard to imagine now, but there were only a couple of venue music venues in Sydney back then. There was the Bondi Lifesaver, which was the uh, the commercial uh, venue with the uh, Michael Chuggs and Michael Godinskis, etc. Uh, I uh, <coughs> took over the running. It wasn't started by me. It was started by a mate called Jeff Cantor, and uh, he sort of uh, um, at a certain stage kind of thought, "I've had enough of this," and sort of. Johnny, Johnny Allen will know what to do. <laughs> Handed me the keys and he took off for, for Bali. Uh, it was in the old um, uh, stables building of Anthony Horden's in Goulburn Street, uh, Darlinghurst, which harked back to the days when when you ordered a, bought a bed from Anthony Horden's got delivered by horse and cart. <laughs> so it was two huge um, um, big um, rooms or pavilions, whatever you want to call them. One of them uh, I set up with... Uh, all of the people from the Asian Hippie Trail who were selling all their caftans and turbans and um, macrobiotic food and patchouli oil, etc., etc. It was like a whole uh, uh, um, Asian marketplace. And the other room uh, was um, the music room, where uh, a wonderful genius called Eddie Van der Madden had a 180-degree wraparound uh, light show, uh, which shows in those days based on sort of, you know, floating chemicals in the watch classes, etc. And um, the, um, it was $2 entry uh, to the Arts Factory, $3 with an acid tab. Acid was not yet illegal, but you know, most people took the deal. <laughs> so you had kind of, you know... Enhance the experience. <laughs> enhance the experience. You had a couple of hundred hippies lying around on the floor on mattresses and cushions watching this mind-bending show. And then all of the musicians were really the, what we would now call the independent scene. I refused ever to deal with agents. If the, if the musicians didn't want to talk directly to me, then as far as I was concerned, they, uh, they weren't going to be performing at my venue. <laughs> so I had a very direct relationship with all, all of the musicians. These are people like Tully, uh, Nutwood Rugg, Taman Shad, etc. Uh, <coughs> people from that era will be familiar with those names. No one else would. But that, uh, they, they were, if you like, the, um, uh, the alternative underground scene of, of the day. And that was became the birth of Nimbin because the Nutwood Rug, who was a, um, an American band that had come out to Australia, uh, had a farm up at the Rimba in the central coast. And uh, every um, few months, um, 
I would say I'd get up on the Arts Factory stage for a couple of weeks in advance and say on the last weekend we're going to be closed because we're all going up to the Rugs place for a bit of a bash. You're welcome to join us. Uh, There was no entrance fee uh, and whatever. People just turn up. Often about a thousand people would come up to the Muppet Rugs farm, camp out, and you just you know spend the weekend going around the campfires. And, you know, sharing smoke, sharing some food. Every now and then two or three people would start a jam and that would become 20 people jamming away. And at the end of the weekend, I'd go around with the hat saying, well, look, you know, we had to hire a truck and a sound system, so we're $180 out, out of pocket. Can you contr-? People would throw in a dollar or two. I'd pay for it and a couple of months later we'd do it all again. And these, had, these little mini festivals had a real spirit to them. Sometimes the music was absolutely uplifting and wonderful. Other times it was just kind of, yeah, sit back and enjoy it all. And Graham Dunstan, who eventually became my festival co-director, of the, had been to some of these, and that became the model for the Nimbin Aquarius Festival. We look back to the, the spirit and the feel of those little festivals up at Arimba and said, that's what we want. We don't want big arts festivals inside theatres. What we want is that feeling of communal sharing and, and it was very immersive wasn't it it wasn't it was you know totally we're going to see this at seven o'clock we're going to see this at nine yes. it was just yeah let it happen yeah yeah a lot of a lot of magic mushrooms in the field we picked and enjoyed <laughs> <laughs> i'm giving the impression that this was a this whole thing was a little bit uh, drugged out it's an accurate impression <laughs> but the drugs of the day weren't heroin and the drugs of the day were pot acid magic mushrooms uh, but they did play a role in, in, a, in a significant role. I think you could do a history of the culture in terms of the mm. drugs of the day. Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> it would it be an interesting... changes, doesn't it, generation? <laughs> it does, and, generation. and the culture changes with it. So the music scene, uh, primarily folk into to rock music? Yes, it was just at the end to transition. The first venues I ran were actually folk venues. I ran a venue in the basement of the Presbyterian Church over at Balmain, with people like Margaret Rodenheit and Jeannie Lewis, etc. And it was absolute. At that stage, they were folk singers. Uh, and, and the heroes uh, were people like Joan Baez and uh, Bob Dylan in his uh, folk days. Uh, and it was just absolutely... The Arts Factory was just at that transition from, from the folk era into the, uh, the modern, as we... You know, the birth of... Um, of an Australian rock culture as we know it today. Was there much of a punk scene? No, not back then. No. That's later. There were punk elements when I think back now. Right. But the... Uh, <coughs> uh, interesting because I... Uh, uh, post-Nimbin, I became a bit disaffiliated. The whole disco scene became, you know, the in thing. And I became rather distanced from the, uh, uh, the music scene. I didn't really have a, a feel to go back running music venues anymore. Until I heard Patti Smith, I heard uh, heard horses. Patti Smith's first record, and I thought, "Okay, I need to meet this woman." <laughs> Scraped together the fare. <laughs> well, uh, in those days, you could um, uh, you could buy a round world ticket, and you could go wherever you liked as long as you kept going in the same direction. Ended up going over to America. Unfortunately, Patti Smith fell off the stage in uh, in uh, Florida and broke her neck before I got there. So she wasn't performing, but I did, was fortunate enough to end up um, uh, <coughs> at CBGB's at the, the birth of that punk scene, where bands like um, 
um, the Ramones, Talking Heads, Television, Patti Smith Band, etc., were just local underground bands. By the time I got back to Australia, they were kind of, you know, international big names. Back then, it was just the local New York scene. And to me, that was the, that was the birth of punk. And, and the, the New York punk scene was very different to the, um, the London punk scene. New York was rather kind of a bit arty, really. Uh, up the back of CBGB's, there'd be Patti Smith sitting there sip, sipping a milkshake and having an intellectual chat about Rambo. <laughs> In London, they'd be kicking beer cans around the street. You know? So, uh, uh, more violent or more um, demonstrative. Um, yes, it was the height of the Thatcher era, so there were yeah. real reasons why. There was people, a lot of anger. Yeah. There was a lot of anger. Mm. And the punk scene, I mean, Johnny Rotten had just done his, you know trip on a barge down the Thames, God Save the Green, she's a fascist regime. I sought out Johnny, Johnny Rotten and sort of... A, I, I was, you know, uh, <laughs> going back to all these people saying, I'm going to go back to Sydney and start a, a, a punk rock venue and I'm going to invite you to come over. <laughs> Which was uh, the intent that I had developed. So I did come back to Sydney, started the Paris Theatre. In, uh, in my mind... Um, I was going to screen the films of people like Andy Warhol, uh, John Waters, Divine, etc. And out of the out of the profits of that, I was going to uh, entrepreneur bringing over Patti Smith and Ramones and Johnny Rotten, etc. Didn't really kind of quite work <laughs> work yeah. out that way, but did help to give birth to a, a Sydney new wave scene. So, in in my mind, at least, although there were antecedents, that punk rock thing as we, as we know it today didn't really kick off until the mid to late 70s. Did you get to meet Patti Smith? I did, right. I did indeed. Nice woman? Very, yeah, lovely, lovely woman. And, and as much a poet as, as anything else, you know, said, uh, I'm a great admirer of her poetry as, as well as her music. Was Maplethorpe around at that time? He was, uh, yeah. he was around at the time, yes. Never got to meet him, but... Uh, Fascinating relationship. Yes. <laughs> and now that whole sort of uh, New York... I mean, <laughs> back, back in, in the 60s in Sydney, there was, it was what's hard to understand now is how much smaller it all was. If you went to the film festival, you'd see the same people that you had seen at a, you know, a Sydney Sim concert at the town hall the day before. It was all you know, very small and... Uh, uh, <clears throat> And you probably knew half the people by name. Uh, when I was in New York, it was the same. You'd go to a Philip concert, sort of a Philip Glass concert at uh, six o'clock on a Sunday night. Uh, you could go to a Twilight Park dance show at eight o'clock. You could go and see the Ramones at eleven o'clock at <laughs> at CBGB's, and it was the same people. And it felt it felt like a, 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 an artistic community that sort of you know supported and fed on it. And that, that of course, uh, got lost pretty quickly. It didn't last for long. The glory of being able to see all of those acts in one day, whereas, you know, we, we would wait 12 months for them to come out for a festival. Because I, 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 I went to San Francisco first and spent uh, three months there and then went to New York and spent three months there. I just gorged on it. I mean, the fact that kind of you could go out every night of the week and, and, and hear these amazing bands and see these amazing people. But what I was kind of... The other big revelation for me was that, um, as I say, I went through San Francisco first because that was the direction I was going in, and I expected to find the remnants of the old Haight-Ashbury hippie scene in San Francisco. 
and indeed you know, City Lights Bookshop and Ferlinghetti etc there was some of that but more importantly what was happening was this emerging gay liberation scene where constantly I would meet these couples where she'd gone off with her lesbian partner and he'd gone off with his gay partner but they still stayed close friends and this is an amazing kind of um, uh, gay cabaretion, gay cabaret scene with Pearl Harbour and the explosions and all these amazing people doing really edgy, really interesting cabaret. Was, was that the name of a group, was it? Yes, Pearl, Pearl Harbour and the explosions. It's <laughs> <laughs> that cerebral hemorrhage in the clocks. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's uh, that, and then of course, you know, just access to all these wonderful bands that I've heard on, on record for so many years. Um, but that that really kind of, in a sense, changed my direction. I just sort of, you know, because <clears throat> eventually when the Paris Theatre ground to a halt and once more I was sitting on the beach thinking, okay, no money, nowhere to live, no job, what happens next? I thought, well, of all of that kind of really sort of frenetic couple of years at the Paris, what did I actually enjoy? What gave me the most pleasure? And it was cabaret. So I thought, okay, my, what my next step has got to be is... So I started something called Cabaret Conspiracy with Doris Fish and, uh, 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 and Jackie um, <coughs> from the, uh, the old synthetics and uh, rounded up all the cabaret artists I could think of in Sydney and we had a great time doing, uh, doing underground cabaret in Darling. Before we pursue that discussion of cabaret, yeah. can we, and uh, let's not leave New York yet, I just yes. want to ask about Andre Gregory. Yes. The great, great theatre oh, right. director that was there. I believe yes. that you, you had a relationship uh, working with him. At uh, I, I did. His, his wife um, <coughs> had a, a, an organisation um, uh, called the Bunch of Experimental Theatres, which was the 12 most interesting kind of little off-Broadway experimental theatre groups in New York. Uh, so it was actually kind of, you know, through, through her that I first met Andre. And then sort of, you know, they... they I, I don't know... I don't know why they were so good to me, I don't know whether they kind of made the decision that I was genuine in my pursuit or whatever, but they basically is, uh, uh, <coughs> said, look, you know, um, who, do you, who in New York do you want to meet? Because uh, they knew everybody. And so, well, just, you know, we'll invite them over for a drink. So I got introduced to and and the, the two of them were just... Uh, and when I left, um, when I left New York, I had my sort of final, um, you know, because... Andre and Chiquita had a wonderful penthouse overlooking the whole of Central Park in New York. Uh, <coughs> went up for a last drink with Chiquita and Andre. And uh, Andre said, Jenny, I've got a job for you. And he's, he had this sort of um, group of, of top international theatre directors around the world that would meet together. This wasn't a public thing, it was just a private thing where they would meet sort of you know, somewhere in the world. But the most recent one of these had been in the Red Sea. And it collected this set of stones from the Red Sea. So he had ten of them in a bag and he gave it to me with ten addresses and said, I know you're off now to, to London and Europe, etc. I want you to see if you can deliver these for me. And what I didn't realise until some time later, though, he was giving me an introduction. He's of course. the most amazing. Yeah. <laughs> some of these people I went right up to the top of the North Sea to meet them. They weren't all necessarily big names. Some of them were. But some of them were names that you, but they were just people that he knew would be valuable and interesting for me to uh, to connect with. So he was, you know, I have very fond memories of uh, 
Andre and Shakita and what they did for me. Yes, and I've always been fascinated by him as a as a theatre yes. practitioner, you know, as a director of Broadway, and of course, um, world prominence, I guess, in that film, My Dinner with Andre. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. and and the two of them sort of, you know, the uh, were very they were quintessential figures in in the New York underground scene at that that, uh, that point in time. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, Charles Ludderman is. Uh, it's a ridiculous theatrical company and all of those sort of you know, wonderful companies doing this. And they, they were all managed um, by Shakita and Andre. Yeah, they, were, they were very important figures. Back in Sydney, the Paris Theatre, um, you also were there when the Paris Theatre Company and Jim Sharman uh, started with a, a series yes. of plays. Yes. Um, that was a, 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 often a period that a, lo- a lot of actors talk about that were part of it. Um, yes. John Gaydon, Geraldine Turner, Kate Fitzpatrick, Robin Nevin. Um, how did that come about? That, that this, this well, I've been, that I had been running the, uh, the, the Paracita for a couple of years. Ostensibly, I guess my models were something like the Castro Theatre in, um, uh, in San Francisco or melded a bit with CBGBs in New York and a few others. I was attempting to, you know, basically I, I, I came back to Sydney after my, spent a year overseas between, uh, uh, arrived in, in America on Independence Day 76 and I uh, got back exactly a year later when my ticket ran out. Got back in 77, found Sydney compared to the experience I had just had in San Francisco and New York and London and Paris, found Sydney a little bit lacking in a few areas. Uh, determined that I would sort of, you know, try and introduce some of this wonderful culture that was flowering so strongly. Um, found that the Paris Theatre at the bottom of Oxford Street was sitting there empty. Uh, approached the City of Sydney to, uh, to, uh, to lease it. Ran it for a couple of years. My whole intention was to try and um, uh, give, give a, provide a place where queer culture, as we now call it, gay culture back then, could flourish. Uh, Film, cabaret, theatre, etc. Uh, had a, a fun, a lot of fun doing it, but uh, struggled. I mean, the rent I was paying was the, was the equivalent of about ten grand a week <laughs> in today's money. So, well, this is the site where I think the Connaught Building is now, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes, the Connaught yes. Building. So it's a so, prime location. A very prime <laughs> location. And in terms of Oxford Street, that was just really firing, firing at that moment in time. Right at the at the bottom of Oxford Street was, you know, in, in terms of gay Sydney, also was a prime location. Anyway, the story is that um, <clears throat> um, a couple of years into it, uh, I read a, a, an article in the paper saying that um, Jim Sharman had been um, putting together a series of uh, new Australian plays by um, Patrick White and Dorothy Hewitt, etc., uh, which he had been going to do at the uh, Jane Street Theatre. Uh, the theatre had closed down, and so the, the the season was in limbo. I had known Jim quite well in the uh, in the hair years and whatever. Um, rang him up and said, uh, uh, "Look, you know, you've got a play season. I've got a theatre. Let's talk." So I went and uh, had uh, long uh, meetings with Jim, and that became the birth of uh, the Paris Company, and obviously after the Paris Theatre. Mm. And um, <coughs> it basically. It, they needed to rip out things like the sort of, you know, the, the film screen, etc., because they, you know, they needed it to be a workable live theatre, which kind of ran counter to what I'd been trying to and to the only source of income. So eventually I just sort of thought, well, you know, I bowed out and they took over the lease. 
and uh, so I was, I, was, I was there for its initial um, launches, etc. I remember sort of, you know, that <laughs> Patrick White was a delightful character when we'd have a, a media uh, uh, press release or whatever, he'd said, well, I don't do that sort of thing, but uh, I, I think I'm going to the fish market on Friday, so if, if I can, I'll drop, so he'd drop in with a bundle of fish <laughs> on, on his way back up to Centennial Park. <laughs> but it was very, again, um, there wasn't a model at that point in time. There had been the old theatre company, but there wasn't a model for the Paris company, and, and it really, really didn't um, have its act together in terms of you know, finance or anything else. But it was beginning, and that morphed eventually into Sydney Theatre Company. Without, without the Paris company, well, there wouldn't have been a Sydney Theatre Company, certainly in that same time frame, because everything grows out of something else. Absolutely. Um, and, and the next growth for you was uh, Cabaret Conspiracy. The next growth was Cabaret Conspiracy, sitting on the beach thinking, what happens next? So <clears throat> the, um, I had been, I'd been a bit of a youngster when Silver and the Synthetics were happening in the uh, early 72 to 75. They basically turned the whole Sydney uh, gay scene upside down with their radical uh, you know, um, queer theatre and cabaret. <coughs> um, they have their only, their only two rules with uh, the um, sort of synthetic show. Uh, There's a loose group of you know twenty plus kind of you know people. Um, people like Doris Fish and Danny Abood, um, Jackie Hyde, etc. At the centre of it, uh, Dennis Norton, uh, others, but um, very much kind of uh, very, no two shows ever had the same cast. Uh, people and they were primarily gay, but not all. I mean, people like Jerry Ripe and whatever sort of thinking of just were just interested in in the kind of you know the uh, experimental and challenging nature of it all. But for me, it had a whiff of revolution. I remember sort of being so excited when I went to their shows. Like, hey, this, this is kind of this is something that's never happened before. This is this is and this is the future. So uh, anyway, uh, when I decided to, that by the time I started Cabaret Conspiracy, um, that had you know their, their last show was in '77. Um, but uh, when it came to looking at people to compare the cabaret show for me, I couldn't go past Doris Fish and Jackie Hyde. So in fact, you know, Cabaret Conspiracy became in its own way a little bit of a continuation of sort of in the synthetics, slightly toned down. Uh, it wasn't really in a the shows were back back in the uh, early 70s were really confronting. There'd be live sex on stage, people would throw bones and fish at the audience. <laughs> so, <laughs> it wasn't quite as, quite as wild as that. But nevertheless, Cabaret Conspiracy was pretty challenging in its, uh, in its uh, own way. Did it, the it, police ever take a look? Oh, yeah, many, yeah. Yeah, many, oh. many times. That, uh, the, <clears throat> the, the, the synthetic gist, the, the whole thing was word of mouth. Uh, and that was a question of staying ahead of the police. <laughs> the, uh, they were very well known to the vice squad. <laughs> uh, and, you know, back in those days, I mean, you know, um, nudity on stage was still very challenging. These days, the Sydney Theatre Company can do a nude scene and nobody blinks an eye. Back then, you had the, the uh, vice squad on your back. So anyway, the, um, the whole ethos of Cabaret Conspiracy was an open stage. Uh, if I'd never met you before, you could come along and say, I'd like to perform. And I'd say, OK, Peter, you're on at 9, 15, 10 minutes. Now, you might be the best thing since sliced bread or you might be bloody awful. Didn't matter. 
because the worse the acts were, the more the drag queen contest played up. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, great. So the audience looked forward to the bad acts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but occasionally, sort of, you know, something would... Uh, I mean, a, a, a performer called Jandy Randoke, and I've never heard of her. Uh, she went on stage for 10 minutes. Suddenly the whole auditorium, the whole room was just spellbound. She just did this dance to showroom dummies and <clears throat> danced with the dummy. It was impossible to tell who was the dummy, who was, who was the real person, who was the male, who was the female. It was just absolutely kind of... And the whole audience just went, wow. <laughs> so occasionally there'd be those magical moments. Yeah. Then occasionally there'd be moments where the performer was... And the audience would start chanting, Doris, Doris, get off, Doris. <laughs> but I, I counted up sort of... In the first year, we put 300 performers... Uh, through the cabaret. Several of those are people like Elena Kachachan and um, uh, um, Mr. Chacha, John, uh, John O'Connell. John O'Connell yeah. went on to Fame and Fortune, John to choreograph Strictly Ballroom, etc. Others were never heard of again, uh, but everyone had their kind of you know, few minutes in the spotlight, and it did, it did actually give birth to quite a number of um, very interesting. When people like Boom Boom the Boom Boom Laburn, Fifi Lamore, etc., emerged as you know, momentarily as the stars, and then Michael Matur, of course, which uh, you know, went on to start his own company sideshow, which um, uh, came out of the Lindsay Kemp uh, company as well, and was you know one of those breathtaking, brief but breathtaking moments in Australian theatre. So you had your first show about nine o'clock, and when would you finish up? Uh, oh, as long as it took. <laughs> it would turn into a party after. It's fairly fluid. <laughs> it's very fluid. <laughs> we made it up as we went. <laughs> T- tell me about Doris Fish, because she is a, a, a name that's mentioned many times in the yes, and, history. Yes, and, and, and was, was very big in my life. I mean, she, was, uh, she emerged, I, I think, I mean, different people have, will have different versions of it. To me, she emerged as the star of uh, Silver in the Synthetics, uh, just by a sheer, she was one of those people who just had a absolute kind of um, presence. When Doris was in in the room, everyone was aware that Doris was in the room. And I don't know what it is that that sort of you know the occasional people just have this. Uh, it was mixed with kind of with an absolute um, driving ambition. Danny Abood, who was very close to her, told me that sort of every morning Doris would wake up and think, "What can I do to further my career today?" She was absolutely devoted. Ambitious. Uh, ambitious. Yeah. Lovely to work with. Uh, she, you know, she compared the cabaret for me for a, a number of years. And uh, eventually she, uh, about 1978, I think, she went to San Francisco on a holiday, fell in love with it, and that became a second home. So from then on, she would spend uh, their summers in San Francisco, and when winter came on, she would come back and spend our summers in Sydney comparing the cabaret to me. And that went on for several years. And eventually, the same thing, she became the great creator of the Mardi Gras floats with um, Dave McDermott and Peter Tully, etc. And uh, and went on to... She was the most famous queen in San Francisco, without a doubt. Had a company there, uh, (coughs) uh, which uh, did sort of... uh, show after show after show because what we thought saw us you know throw away trash theatre at the time looking back on it now it was kind of really radical experimental stuff 
Slatsagogo was the name of the company. (laughs) (laughs) Says it all. But such that uh, um, when she died of AIDS uh, at the end of the uh, end of the decade, the mayor of San Francisco declared an official Doris Fish Day in her honour, in in, in memory of the the contribution she'd made to San Francisco life and culture, which is an indication of just how regarded she was uh, in Mm. San Francisco. Will she be celebrated at the Queer Region next week? Uh, Yes, yes, yes. in fact we're showing um, uh, Doris. Doris spent um, the last... um, decade of her life just about uh, doing a B-grade science fiction uh, movie called Vegas in Space which starred every drag queen in San Francisco (laughs) was financed by Doris's earnings as a male prostitute when they had run out of money Doris would disappear with her client into the bed and come out waving a check and they would shoot the next scene of the film So the only uh, the only feature film probably in history ever shot entirely on a, a drag prostitute's salary. <laughs> but uh, she devoted herself to it. Was basically the the co-producer, the star, the writer, the costumer, the makeup. Basically, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, working with a very incredibly talented uh, group of people. Uh, some of whom been coming out for me for World Pride. Uh, the director Phil Ford. Uh, this, uh, the co-star Miss X, the musical director Timmy Spence, they're all still around Great. It's a very sad story actually because um, Doris died just before uh, uh, um, the film had been completed but not yet premiered and it uh, premiered in 91 I think at, uh, at um, uh, <coughs> uh, both the Cannes and, and the um, American, it's a big American film festival uh, and and <clears throat> basically, Doris uh, couldn't be there, obviously, you know, for, for those premieres, Sundance, premiered at Sundance and then Cannes. And then poor old Phil Ford and uh, Miss X, etc., had to stand in, and they were heartbroken. Yeah, you know, uh, Phil described, he said, Look, it shouldn't have been us, it should have been Doris. And, you know, we were. So he basically fell apart after that. He. he um, uh, got heralding into, into heroin, lost his house, lost his car, lived on the street, pulled himself out of it. But that was that was how dramatic the impact was on them of, of, of losing, losing a, a, a colleague and a friend. Pivotal moment. So the film still survives. It's now seen as a landmark in in queer filmmaking cultural history. It was you know, uh, the only it's uh, the only film at that point in time uh, starring entirely drag queens <laughs> and still although the plot is is you know mm, yeah could be could done with a bit, bit of editing <laughs> uh, the costumes and sets are to die for all shot in Doris's apartment on Oak Street <laughs> uh, all made up with kind of you know bits and pieces of of, 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 of plastic from the local in a dime store but uh, just the creativity is uh, is, is to die for it's, and still, I mean, you know, young people, young drag queens see it today and think, wow, this, you know. I showed it to a, a very young drag queen at one stage, and his first question was, where are the costumes? Are they still there? <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, the costumes are probably long since, uh, long since gone to the waste bin. <laughs> but no, Doris, Doris to me was, uh, no, <clears throat> I mean, her biographer, and she's, she's uh, 
is coming out to launch the biography of her work called um, Who Did That Bitch Think She Was? And uh, Doris Fish and the, the Birth of Drag. <coughs> um, he describes her as, as her life spanning uh, the history of, 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 of uh, modern gay, gay sexuality, gay history. Yep. And, and it does, if you take, take Doris's life, that arc of, 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 basically includes everything that you would want to... Uh, it's great. So the biography will be released. Mostly, yes, it's 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 being uh, it's being uh, finalised now. It'll be uh, uh, released in America, and then the um, uh, the <coughs> the author will be coming out uh, for World Pride to launch to an Australian launch World Pride next year. Now, tell me, when did you first um, sight Darling Harbour? When did you first visit Darling Harbour? Darling Harbour. <laughs> Darling Harbour. That, that's interesting. Uh, at that stage, um, my job was bicentennial coordinator for Newcastle. I had, uh, after the sort of, uh, after the uh, demise of Cabaret Conspiracy, and yet again I sat on the beach, and then, you know, what happens next? I uh, applied for a job as festival director for the city of Newcastle. Uh, partly because I, I felt I was being typecast always as the, uh, an alternative. And I, I thought, well, you know, that, that to me doesn't entirely describe who I am and what I'm about. Mm. So I quite deliberately thought, okay, well, I'll do something a bit a more about main stage. <laughs> Ended up, so, you know, uh, so I got, got the job of uh, uh, directing um, Newcastle's 25th anniversary Matara Festival, went on to be bicentennial coordinator for uh, their celebrations of Newcastle, uh, doing the Newcastle Foreshore Project Regional Museum, visited the Queen and Prince Philip to open both those things. Going and into those regional centres like uh, Nimbin and, and Newcastle yes. requires you to really get a, a firm understanding of the layout of the land, the, the personalities who exist in that town. It, it does. And, and, and I think part of, for, for me, part of me discovering the whole cultural history of Newcastle, because it was a 25th anniversary festival, so that had some significance to the city and the festival. My discovery of that and then feeding that back into the loop of the celebration, uh, I think was, you know, was for me uh, a wonderful experience and, and hopefully it did contribute something also to, uh, to that uh, celebration. Yeah. We did a, um, a wonderful uh, event called Silver Fire, uh, which was sort of a you know, uh, huge uh, fire sculpture done by Silver Harris from Adelaide on, on the, the hills uh, and, uh, of King Edward Park above Newcastle. And uh, you know, events like that that were kind of uh, you know, breaking boundaries a little bit, sort of thing that people um, hadn't done before. But also honouring the history. One of the things I did was um, there, had, there had always been a Matara princess, or a Matara queen. Every festival always had its festival queen. <laughs> so I, uh, I, <coughs> and there was a very active uh, MG car club. Uh, so of, of the 25 years uh, since the festival, uh, since the first festival, I managed to, uh, through the club, to, to get an MG sports car for each of the, the years and to bring together all of the existing uh, festival queens for each of the years. So we had a wonderful parade through Newcastle of the 25 festival queens in Brilliant. the car of their... <laughs> I bet people loved it. <laughs> people did. did. <laughs> and in a way, it was honouring that kind of... You know, it was looking into the future uh, and, and, you know... Um, a, a lot of a lot of the acts etc were were the very current acts, but was also honouring that uh, 
on whom that passed, which are... Queens have come into your world many times, haven't they? In various guises. (laughs) Never never too too far from Queens. (laughs) Even the Queen. (laughs) Even even the Queen, yes, even that her. (laughs) And that led on to to Darling Harbour, the... Yes, I mean, sorry, back back to your question. So during that period when I was at Bicentennial, the main project that I organised was... um, uh, uh, it, it was the Bicentennial Music Festival which involved bringing 10,000 musicians from all over Australia into Newcastle uh, for a music, which was a mammoth exercise as you can imagine the yeah, logistics of kind of a, 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 a swell the population market <laughs> yes. where, where do they sleep? <laughs> on a lot of people's floors <laughs> Uh, but during that period when I was all, and, 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 you know, in contact directly with the Bicentennial Authority headquarters in Sydney, which I was kind of answerable to, spent quite a, and when I would come down to Sydney, I would often go and look at Darling Harbour being you know, ready to open for the, um, um, the Bicentenary. And just, you know, I remember thinking at one stage, if, if back in 1973 with the Nimbin Festival, if someone had said to me then, here's $4 billion, build a celebration space in Sydney that you would think would you would, you would like, I'd have built Darling Harbour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or something very like it. So it, was when, a, it was a dark part of town, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was an old issues goodshed, completely yeah. derelict and, you know, just in, and filthy. And, you know, just, so it was, it, you know, it was starting from, starting from nothing. And yes, it had had a kind of a, a First Nations history before that, Scockle Bay, etc. But uh, in, in that period when it was being, with, um, when Darling Harbour was being, and it was basically $2 billion worth of government money matched with $2 billion worth of private enterprise, which I thought was a pretty good combination. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw it all being built and sort of thought, hmm, I'll have to get my hands on that. <laughs> so when they did eventually advertise for a... Uh, uh, an event director uh, put in an application uh, managed to score an interview caught the train down from Newcastle to go to the interview the train <coughs> broke down and sort of sat on sat on the on the tracks outside because it became evident that I wasn't going to be able to get to Sydney for the interview spoke to the uh, <laughs> the train um um, not the driver, but the conductor, conductor, or, conductor yeah. Yeah, yeah. and said, "Look, I've got. Uh, I'm trying to go to an important meeting. He said, Obviously, I'm not going to get there. Could you get a message through?" Did manage to get a message through to them that I, I couldn't attend because the train broke it down. So eventually, I did get the job, and it was only a couple of years later that uh, uh, I said, "I said, I'll oh, look at boil down to a choice between you and two others." And he said, the fact that you managed to get State Rail to send me a message, <laughs> he said, that's what tipped. <laughs> that's why you got the job. <laughs> so, so, so that's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. But uh, to me, I mean, a Greenfields and a um, you know, perfect venue in my terms. I mean, you know, it had its critics and, and, and probably justifiably so, but it was also kind of, you know, an amazing thing to have to have replaced what had been there before. Mm-hmm. So uh, I took to it like a uh, fish takes to water. Loved it. Uh, 
immediately I, I had a vision for it as as a um, a village green for Sydney. This is where you know, and you know, my position statement was where Sydney celebrates. So eventually, I went out to every group I could think of: Boy Scouts, Girl Guides, you name it, and said, "Look, you know, have you thought about doing an event at Darling Harbour?" And I put together a little very talented production team. So when a Boy Scout or a Girl Guide would come and do their event. Uh, we would produce them so that what they did was properly, you know, properly presented. Sound systems were good, dressing rooms, and and at the end of it, they said, "Oh, we could be booking for next year." <laughs> so very quickly, uh, we were doing a thousand events a year, uh, and some of those might be just you know a school band at lunchtime, but it was also like the Australia Day celebrations with the Prime Minister and the Premier and three hundred thousand audience, or. New Year's Eve with you know, 300,000 people. So it went from the, the big and gargantuan right down to the... And you know, as an event manager, every one of those events still, you know, didn't matter whether I'd had 300,000 people there the night before. If there was a school band at lunchtime, they were still going to need a sound system and a producer and a compare and that all... Uh, you know. So You're giving the community an opportunity to perform, which yes. is great. Yes, um, uh, on, a, on a lovely... Um, City stage. Yes, um, yes. So within within a couple of years, we were attracting. A, a, one of the, the things that we did, and when I say we, I was, I was a, I was the event manager, but there was a very good team, darling, have a team. One of the things we did was manage to put electronic counters on every entrance, so it wasn't possible for anyone to get into Darling Harbour without an electronic being speaking. So we knew exactly. I, I could I could on a Saturday I could uh, ring the head of security and say, how many people have you got in? And he'd tell me, like, you know, 25,702. <laughs> 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 was that, that finely tuned. Yeah. But so with, within a couple of years, we were taking 12 million people a year through Darling Harbour. Uh, we were up there with the three most visited attractions in, uh, in Australia, in fact, with the Sydney Opera House, Bondo Beach and Darling Harbour. And so, yeah, and, and uh, we managed to... I started off with a team of three... Ended up with a team of ten. Started off with three uh, three million dollars. Managed to build that up through sponsorships and contributions to ten million dollars per year. And for a little while, I think uh, eventually, as all things all things do, I think you know, the focus shifted. City of Sydney discovered that you know the the bridge and the opera house were probably a better for, and I agree, uh, a, a better platform for New Year's Eve than Darling Harbour was. Uh, but for that little period of time, I think it did actually uh, did actually contribute something to the life of Sydney. Do you miss the monorail? I do. Well, I, I do. do. <laughs> it, was, it was something that was quite very unique about the city. Yeah, I got I got I got around uh, uh, very quickly uh, through the city on the monorail, and, and I, I mean I I don't know. I, I know it had its critics, and I know some of them personally. Uh, I visually didn't mind it. I mean, I, I guess I. I have a view of cities that cities evolve, they don't stay static, and, and that sometimes the modern and, the, and even the crass, if you like, uh, the monorail going past the Queen Victoria building didn't worry me. <laughs> uh, and I did think it was a very, you know, a, a very efficient... And I used to use it quite well. When I, when I started a, um, a winter music festival at Darling Harbour, I worked with the monorail so that um, we took over uh, one of their monorails and invited all the press... And each time it stopped at a different monorail station, uh, 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 all of the press would be invited to get out and the whole station would be 
country music festival, the next one would be classical music, or the next one would be rock and roll. And then sort of, you know, as, as the monorail did its circuit, it would pick them up and take them on to the next thing. So I kind of, you know, built it into my, um, you know, I, I saw it as very much part of the whole entertainment and uh, experience of uh, Darling Harbour. So it, it, it didn't worry me. But I did miss it when it went. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. It'd be nice to see it back, but I don't think that's going to happen. No. <laughs> So after that very first um, event of the, with the Union Festivals, obviously there have been generations of event directors that have come after yes, you. Yes, yes. How have they been trained and guided and, and given the knowledge to, to fulfil the, the yes, role that's so Yes, that, that's, that's very, very interesting. I, um, uh, at the, I, I, I was the manager for Darling Harbour for virtually its first decade. Then I... Literally got headhunted. How many occasions in my life I've been ever been headhunted? What was then Tourism New South Wales, which is now Destination New South Wales, decided that they wanted to get into the events business. Victoria was right into it, and Jeff Kennett was using events to spook kind of Victoria as you know the, the up and coming sort of. So uh, they decided, and and uh, somehow identified me as a person that might be able to help them do that. So I was invited to apply for the position of director of the foundation director of events for Tourism New South Wales. Um, took it on. I mean, I had some hesitations, to be quite honest, about tourism and the context of tourism uh, because our community had always been my driving force, but also did see it as an opportunity to bring other resources, etc. to it. But one of the first things I did was, you know, A, set up funding. So, you know, set up a regional events funding and a, a Sydney major events funding, just so that there'd be money when people came knocking on our door and said, you know, we want to do sort of, you know, the Rugby World Cup or we want to do a new festival, that we would be able to physically assist them. So set up those funding programs. Then quickly became aware that there are a lot of people out there uh, doing this events but with no training. There had been no training. Usually they had graduated from one other aspect of events. They might have been an audiovisual producer and they thought, oh, I could do all this other stuff. Or they had been, you know, a publicist. And, but, yeah. but there was no... And yet these events were starting to grow. I mean, some of these festivals were now like, you know, 10,000 people. Mm. And, 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 you know, there were people dying occasionally because of mismanagement lapses. So I thought, OK, this really needs... You know, training has got to be a pretty serious issue here. So I approached um, uh, the University of Technology Sydney to do a training audit for me. This stage I had 400 event managers on my books who we had funded to do to, to events. Went out to all 400 of them and said, what skills do you think an event manager needs? Shook all that down and came up with kind of, you know, a fairly, fairly substantial list of, you know, this is a range of skills. On the basis of that, uh, put together a course, initially just a one-off course, and um, uh, it just took off. <laughs> so within a couple of years, with my humble BA, I was writing Master of, uh, Master of Management in Event Courses <laughs> for UTS, and we ended up, um, <clears throat> course, uh, we were the first university in Australia to do a standalone event. There'd been other kind of, you know, a tourism course with an event component, but this is the first time there'd actually been a standalone events course taken seriously as, a, as events training. Started up, I got again headhunted, went to UTS to start something called the 
Australian Centre for Event Management, um, running these uh, these courses up to master's level, but also uh, what we found was that there was a huge need. There were people out there running substantial festivals, but that hadn't had any training and they had gaps in their knowledge. And they weren't going to come back and do a sort of in three-year yeah. degree, yeah. but if you could present sort of something to them in a concise, boil down, say, okay, here's a week where you can come in and take all this away. Uh, so that just took off. So we ended, ended up doing it all around the world, ended up doing it not just in Sydney, but all Australian capitals, overseas in Kuala Lumpur, um, Singapore, uh, London, Edinburgh, um, Beijing, Shanghai, Tourism <laughs> uh, New South Wales became my travel agent <laughs> for a period. And then once every two years I would organise an international um, uh, event management conference bringing together uh, the academics and the industry. Uh, and uh, it would alternate, it would be in Sydney one year, it would be in London the next. And, uh, just, and just sort of basically, um, you know, getting together a community of event practitioners uh, and when they did come together there was a lot of information to exchange yeah so that that, that I guess is why I kind of earned this so <laughs> love it with this uh, moniker of um, you know the father of father events, events. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. rightly and rightly well you're semi-retired now but you're still managing to keep pretty busy uh, yes I mean I, my, my feeling is that uh, once you end up in, in a, um, a big wooden box, you're there for a long time. Uh, so while you can, you might as well uh, in, enjoy life and do what you can. You know. Well, we're going to see um, more of the, the fruits of your uh, wonderful work next week, next Thursday, um, at the, uh, the Queer Evening at the Powerhouse Museum. Yes. It's a free event, isn't it? It's a free event. All you need to do is turn up. Yeah. There'll be uh, ten or a dozen pretty interesting and amazing things. No one will see everything because there's more there than people that can possibly all take in. But you'll have some very interesting choices, and I'm sure anyone who co-attends will go away with a memorable evening. There's something for everyone. Something for everyone. <laughs> well, Johnny, thank you so much for sharing your um, wonderful wisdom and experiences in this chat with uh, with stages and. Um, uh, thank you very much to the father of events in Australia. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Johnny Allen is curating the queer-themed evening for the Vivid Festival Ideas Program next Thursday, June 16th from 5pm at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. It's going to be a fabulous hive of activity to complement the Powerhouse up late. Stages will also be part of the evening, conducting two conversations. Join us at 5.30 when I chat with drag legends Cindy Pastel and Miss 3D. That's going to be fascinating. And then stay on for Stages Conversation with Artistic Director of Griffin Theatre Company and queer theatre maker Declan Green. We look forward to seeing you there. Thanks to my guest today, the dynamic Johnny Allen. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Stages.